Every book tells two stories. The first is the tale inside the page. The second is a story about its reader. Each book that we choose to keep on our shelves tells a chapter in the story of our lives. So join me, Alex Cool, as I speak to authors, illustrators, publishers and booksellers about their shelf life. My guest today is Sarah Winman, author of When God Was a Rabbit, A Year of Marvellous Ways and my personal favourite, Tin Man. Her latest novel, Still Life, is available now. Sarah, thank you for joining me. Uh, Why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about Still Life? My pleasure to be speaking with you, Alex. It's great. Um, Still Life, my goodness, I'm always a bit flummoxed when I'm asked to describe it because it's quite a big book. There's a lot kind of going on. There's nothing going on and everything going on. I suppose to say it's really about a particular moment during wartime, 1944 in Tuscany, when uh, an aging art historian, Evelyn Skinner, meets a young globe maker and soldier, Ulysses Temper. They meet on the side of a Tuscan roadway. They end up in a villa with the captain, um, having looked at uh, an incredible uh, painting that had been uh, sequestered to this villa to keep it safe. And they have this memorable night um, when they talk about truth and beauty and art. And this night seems to stay with both characters, one of those moments of of what strangers can do to you um, and how they can influence you. And Ulysses heads back to the East End of London and through great fortune, ends up back in Tuscany with some various, uh, back in Florence, I should say, with um, sort of members of his friends group. And and that is what it's about. It's about people, extended family, friendship, um, art and beauty and love and, uh, and memory and how people influence one another. Um, that's, that's it in a nutshell without kind of giving too much away. Uh, but as I said, you know, it was, it was very much influenced by, um, by a film called Boyhood which spans about 10 years. This book, my book, spans 40 years. But in the film Boyhood, he just filmed these characters over this period and nothing really happened except their life. There was no great plot points or this is gonna change the sequence. And I really love the idea of that. And I thought, well, could I write a book like that? It comes across really brilliantly. I mean, it's just beautiful writing. And I, I, was, I was actually saying this to somebody else who was asking me to, a friend of mine was asking me to tell them what it was about. And I said, well, it's about these people's lives. <laughs> that's <laughs> and, it, and they, that's it. And, they, and she said, what happens? I said, well, life happens. <laughs> well, no, you know, it's, it's a bit tricky to describe. Because yeah. <laughs> it is, it's just about people and life and change of circumstance, and I suppose that's very important, and opportunity. I've written about opportunity before in Tin Man, but what happens um, when you take somebody who, who doesn't have that much opportunity in life and you give them something absolutely monumental and what change that does and, and the reverberation of that change down the generations. Yeah, and along his disparate group of friends and family and how it brings them all together. You might be able to tell I loved it. Um, I'm very pleased. 
Uh, and I'm very happy to have you here with me. Uh, when you were writing this, how much of this was written during lockdown? Um, I was writing up, my, my delivery was the end of August. So it was writing through, yes, the first lockdown intensely. I had done a huge amount of the book by then, but I hadn't brought it together. So I was writing through lockdown. I think I, think I knew the book then. And I was sort of, you know, I was in love with a lot of it or the characters. Had I not been, I think, writing or, or creating from scratch through lockdown would have been incredibly difficult. And people who had to do that because of deadlines or commitments, I think, you know, I, I, I do. I just think you're amazing to have done that because mine was underway. And I think that was slightly different. But yes, I was, and then I gave it in. And then of course we had these subsequent lockdowns and then I was editing through lockdowns. Um, yeah, not the most inspiring um, time, but you know, this book is about Italy and in a way it, it saved me to be able to go back to this story um, and to enjoy it. And, you know, it is, it is sort of an antidote to to the post-Brexit world that, that this country found itself in and the division that I was getting so bogged down by this kind of hateful rhetoric that, that I needed to laugh and I needed to have some joy and I needed to have something incredibly pro-European in order to um, reinstate my kind of faith, I suppose, in things. So, so at that point, of course, we didn't know there was a pandemic coming. We didn't know a lot of things, but, but it was giving me immense sucker and joy to write it. So by the time it was working its magic through all that other stuff that we thought, oh, well, you know, we'll get through it, but we haven't. And by the time I came to this, it was like, okay, I know, I know how to work with it. Now, I have asked you to pick seven books that have changed or influenced your life in some way. Before we get on to those, I just need to check uh, one thing, which is, are you a big reader? I've become a big reader, but I, I came to reading fiction for pleasure late. I was probably in my late 20s, actually. Um, and I wasn't really a big reader as a child. I was quite a, a bit of a fidget and I wanted to go out and play. Um, so I remember three books from my childhood, um, Flat Stanley, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and Stick to the Dump. And that's it. That's my, all of my childhood reading there. You know, I like comics. I probably would have been perfect for graphic novels, which I haven't really started reading um, succinctly yet. But no, I wasn't. So I discovered books later on. Um, I say this because I've often at events people come up and go, you know, my children or my, you know, my young adult children, they don't read. And I go, give them time. You just need one book. You need one book that will flip it and, and will sort of get you into it and to understand what it can give you. Then, of course, I have become a very big reader. I mean, reading and writing do tend to go together. So uh, I became a, a, a big reader. I'm less of a big reader at the moment because uh, I I'm, a, I'm a critical reader and sometimes that joy goes and I wish I wasn't. So 
and I get I, and I'm very lucky I get sent a lot of books but I'm somebody who gets very overwhelmed by stacks of books and then I end up reading nothing so you know I am a big reader still but it, it comes and goes and and sometimes when I'm well a lot of the time actually when I'm writing um, I don't tend to read too much I didn't read too much with still life until I was well underway because I had so much research I had so many research books and um, yeah my my eyes got tired really so how did you go about uh, whittling down to the seven books that you've chosen today? Mm, it's tricky, isn't it? Because initially I, I thought when, when, this, when I was, thought I was doing this, that it would be favourite books. And actually I find it hard to talk about favourite books because they sit in a very quiet place. And then I went through, I sort of scanned the bookcases and just went for, oh, I remember when. I remember when I bought that book, I know what that period was, or I know what it sort of, how it resonated with me. Um, so I think it was more about that really, that, you know, a book doesn't always exist on its own. There, are, there is the before and after, there is the going into the bookshop, is the conversation, what was that conversation? You know, it was uh, what happened after that, uh, the wonderful uh, kind of coincidences that sometimes happen with books. So, so that's sort of how I've gone um, around it. And then as I said to you, that I would, from my last book, there was a choice of two, and then I've just gone, I've gone rogue. <laughs> <laughs> and I haven't even told you, because uh, there is a, it's a different book. Um, because I think this one will change my life. So I've, I've, I've yes, I've, I've played with the remit <laughs> a little bit, so I'm sorry. No, it's fine. I'm really glad that you you went about it in that way because when I was first coming up with the concept for the podcast, I was looking at books on my bookshelf, yeah, and thinking, oh, I I, I I like that book because it reminds me of the time when I did this, and I or I look at a book and go, I don't have, a, I can't remember what happened in that book at all, but I know where I was when I read it, and I know yeah. I know who I was talking to about it, and and for whatever reason, so yeah, I think. It's like I say in the intro to this podcast, there are two stories for every book. It's the Absolutely. inner story and then the outer story related to whoever it is that's reading. Yeah. Uh, let's start then with your first choice. Okay, my first choice is The Light of Evening by Edna O'Brien. Um, it's a book of, of mothers and daughters or as um, the character Eleonora, who is the daughter, would say, motherless mothers which I think is a quite a lovely phrase. Um, so Dilly is the mother in this case and Eleonora the daughter. Dilly, uh, when we start the book, um, is dying in hospital in Dublin. Um, and she's awaiting or longing for a visit from her estranged daughter, Eleonora. Um, Eleonora fled uh, Ireland after her first novel caused scandal a little knockback to Edna, probably. Um, and, you know, she's, she's achieved certain fame, but uh, she hasn't achieved so much success um, in her personal life. Um, as, and I think if I remember, has probably had a few partners and, you know, all of this is, is incredibly distressing for her mother, who kind of is a little bit, uh, as you would imagine, sort of the rural um, Irish wife and mother um, of that time. 
Um, and so while she's waiting for her, for her daughter, we, we get to know of her life. And there is the most beautiful moment when she went to New York uh, in the 1920s. And how Edna O'Brien writes New York is just incredible. It's cinematic, which of course I would love. And, you know, you, you, I, I'm sure he wasn't influenced, but the elements of Contabine's Brooklyn, when we get the, the, the Irish, the young Irish woman heading uh, into that world is very much what Edna O'Brien has painted here. Um, and the camaraderie of the working girls who she met and the boarding houses and, and she has a deep passionate love affair. Um, and she's, uh, which, you know, she, she's betrayed and she flees back to Ireland. And maybe because of what we know about the story anyway, or that very particular story of which we've, we've probably heard it many times, you almost go, no, don't go, don't go. Because the compromise in that journey of going back to somewhere that is, is, can trap women into the vision of what motherhood is supposed to be and how it's all supposed to be played out actually does play out. Um, and so there is a fraught relationship between Dilly and her daughter, Eleonora, which is, is told in letters as well. There's immense pain um, in this book. It's incredibly honest. And there is a, a moment where you do have that visceral, oh no, um, in the sense that there was a diary that has been left behind. I think I looked up and I think the book got mixed reviews, but I think, you know, she's an incredibly beautiful writer and very lyrical and I love her writing. Um, and so that's, that's how I would probably describe the book. But of course, that book and all these pages um, are representative of a period of time that was entirely magical. So this book, I think, was published in 2006. And I went to see Edna O'Brien read. I'm coming to where in a minute. Um, and it was in 2009 when I came to see her read. And I think um, she had just done a biography of Joyce. But I wanted fiction, so I chose this book and in the front she's written to Sarah on a winter's evening brackets but a happy one Edna December 2009 so where was I I was in a greenhouse in the Wapping project in Wapping in London now the Wapping project had been founded by Jules Wright um, and it was an old power station and Jules Wright, who had been formerly a theatre director, took it over and um, uh, made it into a restaurant. But uh, audaciously, she made an art gallery, which was just the most stunning place. And it was a hub of creativity and very interesting minds who ended up there. And she needed a bookshop. But of course, Jules wouldn't just open up in the main building, she uh, thought, no, I'm gonna have a, a greenhouse in the gardens. So she built a greenhouse, 
one side of the greenhouse was books. At the back of the greenhouse, there was a little desk and there was a wood burning stove. On the other side of the greenhouse, there was, I think, two, two benches, two garden benches. And then there were just loads of cushions. And this bookshop was run by Lydia Fulton. And it was the most magical place. You could only get between 12 and 16 people in. So you would have people squashed up on the benches who needed to sit and everybody else sat on the floor on cushions. And I sat on a cushion at Edna O'Brien's feet as she read, as the little wood burner chugged out heat and the light faded. And I used to go to this bookshop for many, many readings. Um, I think I saw Evie Wilde there when her first book came out, Tony Benn. There was a host of so many, and it was what I used to do. Um, so this was 2009, and I probably had been doing it for a couple of years, going there for a couple of years before this moment. Um, and of course, what this moment represents is the culmination of about to finish Rabbit, because I finished Rabbit in um, the winter of 2009. So when she wrote this book, I was probably two weeks away from actually giving in Rabbit oh. to my agent. Um, it doesn't exist anymore. Uh, Jules died uh, not too long ago, um, but I did my first, I did my first reading in this bookshop. I wanted to. Lydia, unfortunately, wasn't there at the time, but I'd already said, right, whenever Rabbit comes out, I really, really just want to be in that greenhouse because I spent so many magical moments in that greenhouse. Um, and as I said, the last time I was uh, traveling back from this, I remember sitting uh, on the bus and it was very, it was a very cold, very rainy night and sort of the rain and the lights of the street lights. And it was a period of time, you know, my father was dying at that point as well. And I, I had that very great recognition that he was dying on that bus. It was like, I felt my knees go to jelly where I thought, oh my goodness, this is the finality of something incredible and deeply moving. And so that's what this, this little book gives me is a period of time that was um, creatively rich was incredibly magical and and then life changing in in its in its sadness, I suppose. You said about writing uh, Rabbit during that time when uh, you were doing you were going to many readings, particularly this one. Did you find that the readings influenced your writing in any way? No, because I I didn't know what I was doing. Possibly, had I known what I was doing, it might have. I mean, I didn't know. I didn't know writing could influence writing. You know, I hadn't, I hadn't, hadn't done a course, Alex. You know, I hadn't sort of studied the novel. I just knew storytelling because of being an actor. So, no, I think what it did, it, it, it how it influenced, didn't influence my writing. It, it influenced me that I really want to finish a book. I want to finish this book because I know in this moment, sitting here and listening, how amazing to be able to give that gift to somebody else. 
I would really like to sit there and have somebody feel the way I feel in the presence of these people. And I think it was more that, which is incredibly worthwhile because um, I think you need everything, you know, anything you can get your hands on to finish a book. Um, so I think that's really more, more what it was giving me at the time. And did you have a publishing deal for Rabbit then, or was it still no, on submission? No, I, I had, I hadn't even given it in. I remember very clearly I gave it in just before, um, just before Christmas was to descend or that period, that two week period over Christmas, I gave it to Robert and um, I didn't hear from him all over Christmas. And I thought, because I'd had a, I'd had a disappointment with the original Tin Man. I think we've spoken before that the original Tin Man had been written in 2006. Um, and then I got the opportunity to basically start again on a book. So the original Tin Man had not been published. And then I went into Rabbit. So there was no, there wasn't anything definite that this was going to be published. And I do remember uh, a friend at the time, um, an actress friend said, oh, don't worry about it. I know somebody who's written four books and they haven't been published. And I was like, I don't have four books that won't be published in me. I can't do that. After having sort of got to the end of an acting career, pretty bruised and pretty sodden with rejection and not really knowing what I was going to do. Um, and it's, I'm not sure whether the sensible path was to write, but that was the only path that was open to me um, as far as my decision-making went at that point. So um, there it was with Robert. And, and then we moved into January. Um, and I, and it was, I remember it very, very clearly. I was visiting my father um, and, you know, my father was probably unconscious at that point, you know, um, uh, really, really towards the end of his life. And I got a, I picked up, I went out of the hospital and I picked up the voicemail and it was from Robert. And he said, I love your book. This book will be published. Have no fear. It, this, this is a, a wonderful book. Well done. Something like that. And I remember walking back up the stairs and because they always say that when somebody is unconscious, they can still hear. And I just said to him, I said, you know, you don't have to worry about me. It's going to be all right this time. What's your second choice? My second choice is Voice and the Actor by Cicely Berry. Um, I can't really imagine that people listening are going to rush out and buy this book. Um, <laughs> uh, unless you want to do a lot of because that's, that's what it's full of. Um, it's full of chapters like the muscularity of the word. Um, and what else? Relaxation and breathing. Uh, it is, it is, it is a workbook by Cicely Berry, who was a British theatre director and vocal coach. Um, or probably best known as a vocal coach. And she went uh, and to worked at uh, the RSC. She became voice director under Trevor Nunn there and eventually also worked at uh, Central School of Speech and Drum. Uh, I never had her. I was at Weber. But I think some of the people who taught me had worked with her. And she was quite unique in the sense of uh, her approach that, that speaking was part of the whole, 
was heart of the whole body um, and an expression of inner life. Uh, and that was quite new, you know, so it, there was about the physicality. It was working out where is the tension held in the body and things like that. Um, and I loved her and, I, and since then um, I have looked her up on uh, YouTube because of course I wasn't taught with her, uh, taught by her. And she's, she is remarkable and she has, she keeps using this phrase time and time again that came from the, uh, the Spanish tragedy, Thomas Kidd's Spanish tragedy. And she says, where words prevail not, violence prevails. And of course, she's talking about the effects of illiteracy, you know, how important words are. And, um, and I've chosen this book because if I had this book with me, I was always an actor. And it was always, being an actor was so important to me once upon a time. Um, it took me a long time, it took me three attempts to get to drama school. Um, so, uh, and I hadn't always really wanted to be an actor. It was something that happened um, very strangely. One of those uh, strange kind of creative or some people refer to it as the aha moment. And I was in my secondary school um, maybe I just finished O-levels, I can't remember, but at the end of term, a lot of the school leavers used to stand up in assembly and just say where they were going, you know? So we'd have university, a lot went into nursing then, it was a different kind of career structure. So there was the university, university, nursing, university, uh, college, uh, you know, all that. And then suddenly somebody stood up, I was looking down at the time, you know, thinking, oh, I've heard this so many years. I've heard the same thing so many years. And a young woman stood on stage and she said, I'm going to Bristol Old Big Theatre School. And I looked up and the voice inside said, so am I. I hadn't done a play then, but I did then think, okay, well, we need to go and join an amateur dramatics or something. I need to do something. But the point was, it is about that you know, I was at a school that was so, uh, it was a grammar school that was still trying to hold on to its grammar school status way back in the 70s. Um, and we didn't have arts curriculum. We didn't have a strong arts curriculum. We didn't do things like that. And that was the voice of saying, this is what a human being needs, this kind of element of self-expression. And I, I didn't go to Bristol-Ovic, as I said, I did three attempts to get to um, Weber Douglas and I got in and it changed my life to be involved in uh, the arts was such an education. And of course, I wouldn't have written had I not been an actor and understood what the power of words could do. Um, obviously, I'm talking about oral storytelling, which is what I was trained for. But you know, I think probably when I went to uh, drama school, uh, I was a little bit cut off between my head and my body. And being able to read out loud 
great works, great words from other people and to connect that emotionally brought about a wholeness and brought about a wholeness in me, exactly what Cicely Berry is talking about, that these different resonances within the body of where the, you know, the voice in the head and in the chest and in the guts. And there, there is a relevance I find with all of this, with, um, with writing, you know, that the voice, as she says, it is obviously difficult to talk about voice in general terms because the voice is absolutely personal to the individual. It is the means by which you communicate your inner self. And if anybody ever gets worried about voice and tone in writing, I think that explains a lot. It starts at the innermost core of who you are, your personality. It can change, it can develop like we do, but that is what it is and the tone is something else. And so I was, up, I was upstairs in storage, <laughs> funny little storage place, and I opened the door, which is cluttered, and this book fell out. And it's mottled and it's got funny little underlines. And, and then at the front, I've got, it's got my name, obviously. Um, this book has been around my life for 35 years. And I've got something written in the front that says, gummy throat, two tablespoons of honey for one tablespoon of cider vinegar. So you can, all, you can all have that information for free if you have a gummy throat. And then I just, there were like lots of charts of, what's this one? Monothongs and diphthongs and, you know, look, law, medium rounded in the lip position, tongue position, back half raised. It's fascinating. Um, I think it's fascinating. Um, but as I said, it was, it was always around. Whenever I, I traveled a little bit in America, I took it with me. It was just with me because it just meant that I was still an actor, even when I wasn't working. Um, and it meant so much to me at the time, maybe because it took me so long to get to drama school and because of what I've explained about how it changed my life. Um, but I also, I loved being part of it all. You know, I loved being part of... Um, theatre group. I love the half hour call, the nerves of it. You know, I know it sounds incredibly jambon and cliche, but I can look back on that kind of period now in such a passionate way about it, which maybe 20 years ago I wouldn't have because I was still sort of in it and I was still struggling with it. Um, a career really that, that, that hadn't happened or the career I wanted that hadn't happened. So that's why um, I've chosen this book because it's a part of my life, a very important part of my life that brought me to writing. And at what point did that change? Like the dream of this career in, in acting changed to, I'm going to write a book. Um, kind of strange necessity, actually. I didn't plan on writing a book. I think there is, there's a, not quite the right metaphor, but a perfect storm. What I mean by that is a gathering of many, many elements. So I came into my 40s and it, it wasn't that I wasn't working. I mean, I wasn't working, so it was about not, <laughs> so it was about not working, but it wasn't solely that. Um, I was carrying an energy with me that you probably wouldn't choose me in an audition. I see that now. And a kind of, 
not so that every time I went to a, um, an audition, um, it didn't become an audition anymore. It became almost like a way out. You know, I might need money or I might need this. Whereas the actual creative core that wasn't there. So I'd, I'd missed that. I'd, somehow that had gone. Um, I think I said a little bit at that time about my father's illness. So I was helping to care for him with my mother. Um, I, do you know what? I, I was in debt. I owed a lot of money and I didn't know how that was going to sort out. I was juggling it. I was paying things back, but it was just, it was very stressful. Um, and what else was there? That's right. Then, so that was way, that was quite weighty on me. But as anybody will uh, probably agree that when you're walking in and out of hospitals a lot, it's something that really, really does sort of um, bring proportion to what's important. And so at that point, I was quite letting go of acting. You know, I was thinking a change was coming. I didn't know what. And the money, well, I would have to figure that out. But at the moment, I just didn't have the headspace. Um, and I was thinking I was pretty low. You know, I think I was dealing with that as well. Um, I did a course um, teaching English um, to foreign students. And uh, a little moment, one of those moments whereby I learned, uh, I learned English. I learned English grammar for the first time in my life. Because of course, when I was at school, we, it wasn't really taught a little bit. You know, you knew what an adjective or an adverb was, but not, not the different um, verb tenses or anything like that. You know, language is just natural. Sometimes you just don't learn it. Suddenly I learned it. And it opened up something that I don't know, I can't really describe, but somewhere inside said, I have a command of language now. You know, I know, wow, this is the rhythms of it, the choices amidst it. And then at that period of time, I went to City Lit and I did um, a course with uh, a poet. Um, and I, I found the old uh, prospectus and it is it was written as a creative writing course, but I don't remember it as a creative writing course because it wasn't how I imagine creative writing courses are taught now. It was very gentle. Um, we looked a little bit at text, but generally it was, you know, if you wanted to do an exercise, you could, and if you didn't, that was also fine. Um, and I've, I've skipped a little bit. The reason I went to City Lit was I needed to do something creative. And I thought about whether I was going to do an open university degree, maybe English, but I needed to just do something that was so different from whatever was going on in my life at the time. And that's why I ended up there. You know, otherwise my life was mainly just going to be sort of hospital visits or, 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 or that. I just needed something to, to bring back a kind of a creative stimulus that I had lost really through acting or the kind of acting that I was doing. That's why I ended up at uh, City Lit. Um, and I loved it. I loved her course. And I did two terms and I had 40,000 words of prose. And I, my acting agent at the time was affiliated with a literary agency. And so I took that, those 40,000 words, I gave it to Eamon and I said, is there anybody here who might like to look at this and tell me if it's any good? Should I carry on writing it? And then a couple of days later, Robert, 
phoned me um, and said, come and let's meet. And Robert became my agent. And that, those 40,000 words, was the original Tin Man. What I say from that was I never intended to write a book. Um, because if I'd thought about that in the past, one of those fleeting moments that we all have, and I think I might have found something in a diary entry way back in maybe 1992 or three saying, I'd like to write, I'd like to write a book. But there was no way I was going to write a book because I didn't have command of English. I hadn't been to university. All of these things were part of the story of which we limit our beliefs. So even though I might have wanted to write a book, I had enough armor to tell me that I wasn't capable of writing a book. I wasn't the right person to write a book. You know, I wasn't educated enough to write a book. And so it wasn't a conscious decision. It was basically, did I fall into it? Well, yes, to some degree, I, I followed my joy. And that's what I'm starting to understand. I came late to that, but there's a lot to be said for it. You know, the joy over what the head might be telling you to do. And so that's why I ended up there at the City Lit, writing these words, um, meeting Robert, getting an agent. And in a very strange way, from the moment I committed to that, the doors opened. Now, I used to say that I was, in events, I would say that I was very lucky um, and it seemed to happen so smoothly. And then somebody reminded me that I'd done sort of 25, 30 years of acting, which prepared me for that, <laughs> which of course is true because that was, the, um, that was the storytelling. That was learning how to tell a story, you know? So this was just a moving on from that. Um, so that's how I came to it. It wasn't a, a conscious decision that I would start writing. What's your next choice? Okie dokes. My next choice is, I've gone out on a limb here because this is one of my, if not my favorite books. Um, and it's Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison. And I've read it multiple times and every time I read it, it changes, especially the ending. Sometimes it's a triumphant ending. Sometimes it's a mournful ending. Um, so where shall I start with this? It's a book, I mean, it's so many characters again. Um, I will start with the epigraph and it's quite rare because, no, I first will say it was written in 1977 and it was her third book. So before that was um, Bluest Eye and Sula. So, you know, this was, a, this was an incredible third book. So I was, I was saying about the epigraph. She wrote the epigraph herself, which is quite a rare thing, I think. And it says, the fathers may soar and the children may know their names. Um, and it is, it's about flying. It's about many, many other things, and it is relevant back in 1977. It's irrelevant today as it is back in 1977. Why is it um, about flying? Um, this is something new because I had listened to Toni Morrison uh, do a, a, an interview when this book came out. 
one of the things that is so incredible about this book is, of course, it's the language, but it's, it's the richness of language. It's the vernacular. And it is, it, it not only wants, makes you want to be a better writer, it makes you just want to be a better person. So in this interview, she was talking about the language and where, and, and the kind of language she grew up with. And she was saying that she was surrounded by people talking about the Bible, people really talking about journalism, song lyrics, her mother sang songs all the time. And then she said, and she, I was surrounded by myths. She said, the thing about myths, there is some truth to myths. And one of the myths that is the basis of this book was that had always been told to her, told to many people she knew, that black male slaves under certain circumstances would fly back to Africa. And she'd always, she'd always heard of it. And she started to ask around, you know, has anybody heard about this? And she says that some people would say, yep, I've heard of it. Haven't seen it, but I heard it. Um, and then sometimes she would come across somebody who said, yep, I've seen it, just up and flew. But she said, nobody ever said they hadn't heard about it or that it wasn't true. And that was the basis. And that is kind of the start of this book because it has the most arresting uh, start of, of an insurance man, Mr. Smith, standing on a hospital, um, as having told everybody that he was going to fly unaided across Lake Superior. And he's standing there in his blue wings. And into this scene comes who we eventually know as Ruth. Um, and she's pregnant with who we will eventually know with Milkman, who is kind of the most central character in this story. And following her are her two daughters who've got baskets of um, cut out velvet rose petals. And then into this scene comes a singing woman, pilot. And these are really the core of our characters and the chaos that ensues when he leaps. And it's not quite as he imagines, but it is very much about Milkman's story um, and the absent fathers that maybe not physically absent, but emotionally absent. Um, and that's why she's saying that the, that the fathers may saw and the children may know their names, to know where the children came from, the importance of knowing who your ancestors are. And what is so remarkable about this book is how she writes men. I'm not even sure some male writers write men in the way she has written this book. The language, the... Uh, the way they think, the way they talk, the, the conversations between Milkman and guitar, 
um, two characters. There was one particular about um, race and murder. It is electrifying. And she just nails this language time and time again. And it is uh, Milkman's journey. It is very much uh, about him looking at how he's treated people and getting in touch. And as he goes on a, a, a road trip back to where his people were from, and he starts to understand where he came from and what happened to the men and his family. Um, it's a remarkable book. And it, it's, it changed me because that's what remarkable books do. You know, they stay with you. And the fact of, you know, we're talking about these men flying off. There's also a relevance today of, of, of what has been happening. You know, of, of, there's also another absence with black men over that they are being killed. They're being murdered, you know. So it's an in incredible novel about flight, about escaping, um, you know, flight that is often used in, in sort of spiritual songs, moving from the earthiness of the human to something more spiritual, um, escaping kind of the cultural prison, um, which is what Milkman does. There's, but there's so many aspects of, of what flying means and the escape of, of your circumstances and being able to see that you are more than your circumstance. You said about how she writes men and it's made me think of the men in your books, uh, Ulysses in Still Life um, and Edison Michael, particularly in Tin Man and how you've chosen to write from their points of view instead of uh, other characters. How did you, how do you find writing from the point of view of a man? Is it different to writing from a point of view of a woman? And do you find it more or less difficult? Um, that's a very good question. Um, I, I don't think the difficulty comes into it because I don't sit down and think what the character is gonna be. The characters come to me quite um, early on what I'm going to write. I suppose from, okay, I suppose from writing as a woman, I write from, from, my, from me, from my guts, from my heart, from what I know, from my experience, from my memory, from of that. So there's, there is that relationship, which, you know, how to describe something that is. And I've noticed that when I write about men or these main protagonists, I'm writing about how I would like men to aspire to. I think it's that, that whatever my feminist credentials are, I know that we can't do it on our own and that we need to do it with men on our side and that the men I write about are the kind of men who would support women. And that's what I see very clearly that I'm writing. So in the case of, um, Michael and Ellis, they were supported by these three women um, in that incredible way that these three women brought up these boys and men um, capable of beautiful things, which is also part of it, trying to keep at bay that kind of patriarchal element that is so destructive, that we know is so destructive. Um, and so when I came to Ulysses, it was a very similar situation. Yes, I knew that 
he was a soldier. Um, and my grandfather had been in the uh, Eighth Army and he had traveled up from North Africa. So, and through Sicily and up through Italy. So I knew that, that I had that familiarity, but I think I'm writing, I think if I'm certainly in still life, I'm writing about these men who are bringing up a girl child. And what I wanted was, if we say in a perfect world or in a Jungian world that we are equal feminine and masculine energies, and we call about the positive feminine and masculine, and, they, and they're very complementary. And if we say that the feminine energy is about cherishing the earth and cherishing matter, cherishing the body, being creative and being receptive to ideas and listening. I wanted the men to have that. So I wanted the men in my book to very resonate, to resonate, sorry, with quite a feminine energy. That, so Cressy, you know, he's in touch with nature. You know, uh, Ulysses, he's, he's quiet. He's seen something through war, which has affected him. As Evelyn says at the end, it took you a long time to get back from war, but you did it, meaning the repercussions of that. Um, they brought up this girl into a young woman who's lovely, balanced. You know, they are, they are what men can be. And many men I know are like that. They have gentleness and the way they talk about, they, the way they talk to each other and the caringness of them. And so that's sort of what I'm writing about. I'm writing about how different the world would be if men were allowed to take off the armor of patriarchy. And so whether that's not, it's not quite what Toni Morrison and how she writes, she writes very much in a very realistic, in the moment kind, and I'm not, I'm sort of writing something it's a little bit idealistic, and a little bit aspirational, but I know it's there. And, and that's my, that would bring about the biggest change in the world if we had that kind of nurturing from, from these predominantly men in power, I suppose. What's your next book? My next book is, um, Patty Smith, Just Kids. Um, why? Um, because, because I love Patty Smith. And um, I first saw her on stage uh, in Denver back in 1997. And she was a special guest uh, and she was performing with the Indigo Girls at... Um, a natural amphitheater in Red Rocks in Colorado. And I, I would, I'd been very familiar with her music, of course, um, but I'd never really seen her perform before. And this was the moment that sort of changed my life. One of those moments. Because yes, she's a poet and a songwriter and a singer and an artist. But what I noticed when she strutted across the stage as the light was going down and these rocks were red was that she was a shaman, that there was something about her and incredibly powerful. You can't take your eyes off her. 
And I do believe that even today. And from there on, I, I tried to get to see her whenever I could. She did Meltdown at the South Bank. So this book, I'm not sure when it came out. When did it come out? 2005, I think. I'd never really read her writing, you know, before, even though, you know, I'd never sort of got her song lyrics uh, as a separate book. And then this book was, the story behind this book was that when, in the lead up to Robert Mapplethorpe, when he was dying of AIDS, he asked Paddy Smith to write their story because they'd been young lovers. You know, they were together, that was their relationship and they always loved each other. But he asked her to, to write their story out and this is it. And it's incredibly tender, it's a beautiful memoir. It's about their relationship, but it's also about the emergence of her um, as an artist, that this is what she always wanted. And at the start of the book, there is something that she goes, I longed to enter the fraternity of the artist, the hunger, their manner of dress, their process and prayers. And that this is what she was going to do. She was going to enter that realm, whatever happened. And who she quotes, you know, Rambo and Genet, and she, she, was, she was soaking up absolutely everything of the time. And she was heading to New York and she's keeping a diary and it's 1967 and it's July and she, she says, today was a Monday. I was born on a Monday. It was a good day to arrive in New York City. No one expected me. Everything awaited me. And I mean, I love that sentence because actually that's how I felt the first time I went to New York, which was way, way later in the 90s. But I think most people, the first time they kind of go to New York, that there is that familiarity of, of a city shown through sort of films um, and books. And so, of course, as soon as I'm reading that, I'm, she's talking about of a New York, of the Chelsea Hotel and... Uh, Max's Kansas City and where all these artists and musicians hung out. And I'm a huge romantic because part of me would have liked to have been there at that time. So I'm totally living through her at that period of time and her efforts to, uh, to become an artist and to become a singer and to become a songwriter. But also this burgeoning love affair that she has with almost her twin. And that's actually who they were. They, they, I think her husband said, how is it that Robert Mapplethorpe always manages, every time he takes a photograph of you, how does he always manage it to manage to make it look like him? That's how similar that they were. Um, and, you know, how she, how they supported each other. Because I think that's, you know, one of the things they're saying in Tin Man, who do you need on your side to become an artist? Everyone needs something, someone. And they had each other. And of course, the, you know, as anybody, if they know about Applethorpe's work and, you know, he struggled with his sexuality and, and, and then found a security within his homosexuality and how, you know, hard, she doesn't really go too much into that, but it's, but it's there. But the point is this love affair carried on. They just loved each other. She's a wonderful writer. It's beautiful prose. And if anybody is interested in her or in, in a period of time of art in New York and, and who... Patty Smith later became. If anyone's interested, her Instagram feed is fantastic, you know, and how she writes, because she absolutely is 
kind of creativity, creative energy incarnate. And that's what I love about her today, that, you know, women with long careers in the arts and moving around from, from music and she's a wonderful artist, art, um, and then to uh, poetry and, and writing prose. So I don't know, I admire her. I, uh, any quotes that come from Patti Smith, I sort of lock myself onto them because there's always huge wisdom and grace uh, and humility with, with, um, with what she writes about and who she is as a person. Um, so that's why I've chosen this book because it, it sort of reminds me of, of things that I was passionate and am passionate about and where these two artists ended up. And also the way she talks about um, being, uh, having a life in art was, was absolutely what I wanted as well. It's sort of that romance of, of running away somewhere to not quite join the circus, but that kind of thing, lead a very, very different life. Is there anything that you could see yourself writing a non-fiction book about? Or is that something you're thinking I'm going to leave to other people? Yeah, interesting question. I, I'm not sure that I, I could. I think, um, I don't know. I don't know if I could write nonfiction. I think it's very different. You know, there are, there are, there are boundaries with nonfiction. There is sort of truths <laughs> that, that mine are very wishy-washy. I can, I can sort of sometimes sit down once I've got a book to. A, a particular position I feel I can write anything which of course you can't always in non-fiction um I don't think I'm I don't think I'm that interesting for a memoir really I you know I generally have had quite an ordinary life you know I mean it's been sort of interesting toward in this middle period but generally it's been quite ordinary um which doesn't mean that if you have an ordinary life you can't write a memoir because we know there are gems in there but I'm not sure I could eke it out to sort of 260 pages, really. Um, so no, I might leave that up to other people. Am I interested? Is there a subject that I would be interested in enough to write it as a as a nonfiction? I don't. I don't think so. Um, I think maybe. I think I may be limited as a writer. <laughs> but yeah, it might. It might just be fiction. I can imagine as well coming to a, I, I do this as well, sometimes you're watching the things on the news and you hear a story and you think, oh, that sounds good. It would have been perfect if this had happened then though. And <laughs> the narrative art would have been much better if. <laughs> Completely, exactly that, which, you know, which you can do. Um, but I, I think what I'm really in awe of um, are people who write nonfiction um, in such a way that it almost feels like fiction. That there is such a joy to the prose, and I think that that is uh, that's incredible. And two research books actually that were like that was one by I've talked about it a lot. When Marvelous came out, was was by a guy called Fred Magdalene, and it was called The Red Rocks of Ediston. It was about the Ediston Lighthouse. I love this book. It was so exciting, um, but it was all true. How in the sort of 17th century, they built a lighthouse on rocks that were never dry. I mean, it's, it's incredible. Um, and then another one I wrote, I was reading for, uh, for Still Life. Um, and it's, it feels very sort of, the title feels very sort of prosaic. It's called The City of Florence by R.W.B. Lewis. And I had this book in my company for a very long time. 
uh, and didn't pick it up because I just looked at the size of it and just thought, the city of Florence. I thought, it doesn't look very interesting. It gave me so much <laughs> when I opened it. It was an amazing book. It's, it's a fluid book. It's not linear. It's just glorious. So if anybody is interested in Florence, I would highly recommend that book. Um, it goes back into the history, the important parts of what you need to know about a city, uh, written, by, written by somebody who, who was there during the war. I think he was part of the Fifth Army, which was the uh, American side. So uh, yes, people who have that skill, I'm, I'm in awe of. What's your next choice? My next choice is A Prayer for Owen Meany by John Irving. And this book, yeah, really did change my life. Um, I probably uh, would have read it in maybe early 90s. It came out in 1989. It's quite a simple story, really. It's the story of John uh, Wilwright and his best friend, Owen Meany. Um, and they were growing up in New Hampshire uh, in the 50s and 60s. The one main thing that I sort of remember was sort of that it, that it brought in this narrative, um, the opposition uh, to the Vietnam War. And it's a first person narrative which which has the sense of a memoir to it why did it change my life because this was the book that brought me back to um reading fiction for joy this was this was it that suddenly said this is what a book can be and it was literary and more than anything it was funny there were aspects that were so funny with this book um, I think it had a great influence on Rabbit, talking about influences. There, was, uh, there were scenes in Owen Meany, uh, a nativity scene that is the most brilliant and funny book, uh, funny scene. And also um, there is uh, the, a reenactment of A Christmas Carol. And both times Owen is the lead in both. Um, I didn't know literature could, literature, literature could do that. You know, I didn't know it could bring about such great emotion and be current and be political and be funny. And, and it was a revelation, I suppose, in many ways. And then it's probably shortly after that that I went through most of his books, uh, started reading as many books that I could, and then moved on to Toni Morrison. So I think what he did that wasn't just about reading any fiction. I was sort of moving into American fiction a little bit, but I felt that there was a, I just loved the moving away from, from Englishness and embracing sort of American stories. And I think probably at the time I, I wanted to be American. I wanted to live in America. I wanted to move away from this country and sort of start again there. Um, I don't feel like that now and I haven't for many, many years, but that was my initial um, feeling when reading it. And then as I've written my own books, I come back to, and I've often quoted this, um, the opening lines. Uh, if anybody, again, in doubt of tone and, and what that can do. And it is, I am doomed to remember a boy with erect voice not because of his voice or because he was the smallest person I ever knew, or even because he was the instrument of my mother's death, but because he is the reason I believe in God. And all the themes of the book are in that sentence. 
you know, philosophy's mother, his best friend, but also the shaping of the best friend. He's got a funny little voice and he's also really small. Um, and then the element of religion that came in because of that. But what I also love, if we go to the first one, two, three, four, five lines and the position of the word doomed, I think it's absolutely brilliant. I am doomed to remember that we automatically know that there is pain in the remembering of this, these stories and that I'm going, you know, there's a certain haunting of this. Um, so, you know, it, for a long time, it used to be a favourite book. It's not a favourite book anymore, but it's a book that I respect and it's a book that I'm incredibly grateful for. And I think he's a wonderful writer. Um, and, and as I said, I think it did influence uh, writing with Rabbit uh, quite a bit. Earlier this year, I had an interview with S.J. Watson doing the same thing and he chose the same book um for oh, really? very similar reasons i think it was the one that got him writing um but yeah very similar reasons and we actually spoke about how it's a long book it's quite a yes. big book um your books are not particularly long i think still life is probably your longest yeah. uh but it balances out with tin man which is quite a lot shorter uh, yeah yeah do you find yourself writing sort of tomes and tomes that are sort of uh john irving-esque lengths that you then pair back or do you think that's something that you would never ever get to those dizzying heights of um i've never really i never thought about writing a long book so i always thought you know i thought the length of rabbit which is what 350 pages and marvelous i thought that was a fair amount um <clears throat> tin man was always going to be short you know i wanted to explore you know short form uh, writing but not in short stories because that's I, that's not what i do but i wanted to have it in, in novel form when i came to still life i had no idea i mean i started from such a strange place i started with the flood i had very little idea what i was going to do i <clears throat> i suddenly had i suddenly wrote uh, this 1901 section of a character meeting Forster, very separate. Wasn't totally sure where that was going. So it was just trial and error and many, many drafts. Um, but there was so much to write. I mean, that, that was the point. I, I'm sure that's what he does. Maybe he just gets so involved in it and he just thinks, well, I just keep writing. And I think I was a bit like that. Um, there was just so much to write <laughs> because I just liked the interaction of these characters. and. Uh, and as I said, there was a great, there was a huge amount of joy in, in writing some scenes. And I'd be in bed, chuckling away to myself, writing away. <laughs> you know, it's so awful. It's like bad, bad, bad to admit to that. But I was, and I just kept writing. And, and that's why we love editors. <laughs> and I knew that I, I had an editor who would, who would shape it, should it needed to be shaped, which of course it did. And I think I gave it in at... 150 something words. So I, I lost in the edit about 20, 25,000 words. Um, and that was right, you know, um, because it needed to be tight and there needed to be this sort of narrative kind of energy, which I started to understand um, when I was editing this book, that, that it was a little bit maybe too boyhood 
in its meanderingness, even though there was a through line, it wasn't, you know, there was, there was a lot to get through. And I was aware of that. And then uh, I was working out how to sort of move it along and, and bring people uh, into the next decade. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm surprised every time I write a book, I'm surprised every time I come to the end of a book. And I was surprised very much uh, that with this book, that it was so long. I would never, I'd never planned on writing a long book, mainly because it's such hard work. And, and um, I couldn't think that I would have that much really to write about or to say. But as I said, I think it was just the, the, the characters and, and what the city, let's be honest, what the city opened up. I'd never done so much research and, and I was coming across stuff that, that I just found interesting and wanted to include and a lot of that was taken out so there was quite a fine edit on some of the um art uh, history references i love coming to uh, the point of editing even though when you get those first notes back and you're just like oh my goodness i don't know i don't know how to do this um you know that you're in safe hands because the editor gets the book understands the book loves the book they're only going to do the best for the book and so, yep. And then, of course, on top of that, after editing, you have copy editors who, again, I probably put through my copy editors, put them through quite a bit. So I'm hugely grateful <laughs> to them as well for all their time um, and uh, just accuracy. I think that's it. Uh, I'm not sure. I don't know if John Irving has an, has an editor anymore. I heard whispers that he doesn't. Uh, well if he can manage it, if he feels that's great, that's good. I can never be without an editor. Um, I love how their minds work as well. And I think why I like it is because they remind me of um, directors, uh, certainly during theater, where it's not about pages and pages of notes. It's about the specific notes that can change everything. And sometimes you just get such a specific note. It is so exciting that this scene, these scenes that, yeah, you think you've kind of done a good job, but you know something's missing. And then the editor comes in and it's almost like they fix it. And you're just like, ah, oh, this is the magic. This is the collaboration. And uh, that's what I absolutely love. What's your next choice? My next choice is a passage to India, Ian Forster. Again, not so much the book that changed my life, but the writer. That changed my life. Um, I could have chosen a few of his books, especially, obviously, still life. I used Forster's A Room with a View, uh, referencing a little bit. Um, and I think it's a, tr a tremendous book. But I'm actually just going to talk about a book that I left. I hadn't read it. I left it till after I finished writing. Um, and that's that was a passage to India. And I wanted to put the TV series so far out of my mind so that it was really just uh, the words and how he set it up. And I think it's an astonishing book. It was his last novel. I think it was his last writing, but it was his last novel, uh, published in 1924. Um, and it's so modern. And again, so prescient uh, in how we look at race and colonialism 
which is what he was writing about. The backdrop to the story, of course, was the British Raj. And in many ways, it was daring. The, the British do not come out well in this novel. Neither should they. Um, Forster visited the Barabar Caves in India in 1913, which the Barabar Caves eventually became the Marabar Caves in the book. He didn't write uh, Passage to India straight away. He wrote Maurice next, and then he started, I think, Passage to India in 1921. Um, the focus of the book is the friendship between um, a British school teacher, Mr. Fielding, and a Muslim, Dr. Aziz. And the start of the book, I love any book that for me is very cinematic in its range. And, and it is, it's as if, it's as if Forster has this roving camera on the landscape and he moves around uh, the mountains and the trees and describing and the camera's moving and the camera's moving until the last sentence of the descriptive element of the landscape is the Marabar Caves, which of course is where an incident happens that changes the nature of the novel completely. And then from that, we have a little jump. And then we have Dr. Aziz riding his bike, trying to get um, to his friends. They're having an evening of conversation. And he walks in uh, on this conversation and he says, they were discussing as to whether or no it is possible to be friends with an Englishman. And that is the theme. Can an Indian be friends with an Englishman under British Raj, under the rule of British Raj? Is that possible? And that is the dilemma of this book. Um, and of course, what happens is there's two women come uh, part of the story, two women, Miss Quested and Mrs. Moore, um, turn up in Jandrapur. And Mrs. Moore is there to see her son and Miss Quested will be briefly uh, engaged to the son. And Dr. Aziz loves these two women and he wants to take them on this outing to show them the real India away from, uh, you know, the clubs of the British Raj. So he takes them on an excursion to the Marabar Caves. And he loses them. I think Mrs. Moore doesn't go. I can't remember, I haven't read it recently, but Miss Quested goes. And uh, she wanders off into one of the caves and Dr. Aziz, he, he can't find her. And then the next thing he knows, she's running down the hill towards the cars where they were parked. And she gets in and drives off. And what happens out of that is that she had an incident. She came over faint or scared or something imaginary happened. But it is taken that Dr. Aziz sexually assaulted her in the caves, which of course was not true. And he's arrested and he's taken to trial. And his friend, Mr. Fielding, of course says, no, you know, he's, he's innocent. 
but he's put through a huge amount. I mean, it's devastating. Of course, it's devastating. And then finally, uh, Miss Quested actually recants the accusation. Dr. Aziz is free. And, but during that period, you know, you, you get the two camps of the British, what they were thinking about everyone, and the Indians, what they were thinking about the British, very, very clearly laid out. And then Dr. Aziz feels very betrayed because Fielding uh, takes under his care, Miss Quested, in the aftermath of that, allows her to stay with him. And Dr. Aziz feels that this is an absolute betrayal of their friendship more than anything. Um, and it's also painful because Fielding also persuades uh, Dr. Aziz not to get a financial remuneration for the, the heartache and the trauma that he was put through. So Dr. Aziz ends up very, in a way, I suppose, bitter, understandably so. And then right at the end of the book, Fielding comes back and says, you know, come on, we're friends, we're friends, we can be friends. And basically the ending is, we can't be friends, not until India is free. What can one say about that? I mean, he, he was, as I said, it, it is an incredibly modern book, but it's, there are elements of it that, that are so relevant today. The mess that the British Raj caused in India, the, the wound of that, the wound of any form of colonialization that still remains after the British have gone, that is still not looked at today in our history, in context, in any form other than saying, well, we were triumphant. The mess has never been looked at. And going back to what I was saying about how I, want, how I write men, this is what I'm hoping for, that one day we will have politicians of both sexes who will be so focused on writing the wrongs of this, of, of having a history curriculum that talks about this. And um, so, yeah, I, find it, I found it a remarkable book. I found it a remarkable book for him to have written at that time. Ian Forster spent quite a bit of time in India, um, a few years before the book was published, but still. Uh, did you go to Florence when you wrote for, for when you were writing Still Life or did you rely solely on uh, the reference books? No, 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 that was that was really important. So I start I, I first went to Florence in 2000. Well, I've been a couple of times uh, in the 90s, but not that it that sort of that it sort of resonated. So I went in 2015 on purpose. I'd done a basic Renaissance art course. As a culmination of that, I went to Florence in the January 2015. 10 days uh, just looking at art and being there. And when I was there, I came across some photographs in a restaurant of Florence underwater. What I came to know that was the 1966 flood. And then I talked to the owner and he brought out some books and he started telling me about the Mud Angels who came, you know, the young men and women who came from all over the world to basically clean up art and clean up the city and help people get back on their feet. And I had never heard of this story. I never knew that it had happened. And I thought it was a remarkable story. And of course, an incredibly romantic story. Um, but it seems so vast at the time. But I know the story met me there. So the story flew in through the window basically and said, I'm here. 
and I'm yours, whether you like it or not. So I tried to get rid of it. I tried to ignore it. Although that trip, I, at the academia, I bought a book called Dark Water, um, which was about the flood. Uh, I didn't read it for like years. And as I've said, it was 2015 and I still had to write Tin Man. So I pushed all that aside, wrote Tin Man. And then I came back to sort of my head rose out of uh, Brexit and all of that stuff. But I still had Florence. Um, Dark Water turned out to be a great, had a great bibliography at the back, which was amazing. So it led me to other books. But I was still nervous about writing about a city that I'd never stayed in. I'd never lived there. I didn't know it. There's so much I didn't know. And there's so much still I don't know. Because if, if I go back to the other three books that I've written, they're, they're centered, they're placed uh, in cities and landscape that I know very, very well. And I don't really like writing unless I do have that. So I thought, well, I need to spend some time there. How am I going to do that? And a friend suggested that I uh, write uh, the Arts Council England have grants, various, various grants. And there was one called Developing Your Creative Practice. And they said, why don't you apply? And the vast forms to fill out. So the beauty of writing out a grant form is that it stills you, it stills your mind and it makes you focus. And so on those pages, I kind of had what I needed, what I wanted to get out of going to Florence. Um, what book was going to be written. Um, and I was lucky, I got a small grant, which enabled me most of all was to spend uh, January, the whole of January, 2019 on the square where the story was set. And it was changing, it was life-changing to the, to, to the degree, creatively life-changing because it was the first time that I kind of wrote in situ of a place I didn't know and wrote as I went along. But that was so useful because, of course, I'm writing about people who have been uprooted and they don't know the system anyway. So I could become them in all the humiliations and not knowing the language and not knowing the systems. And so that worked incredibly well. And then I just went back now and then sort of uh, in very sort of a week or 10 days when I needed to sort of get a little bit more of a... Uh, just needing to, to have access because the other problem is that it's hard to get uh, online uh, access to information. Another friend who was writing on Italy said, it's not easy. We, we're very lucky here. We have access to a lot of books, um, online information. It's not quite simple. So it was very useful to be able to go over there. But it was, it was the first time I'd done it. Um, and it put a few ghosts to rest and a few fears to rest, thinking that I can only write about somewhere that I know very well. Um, and then the rest, you just sort of learn, or I, I, I'd, I'd ask people, you know, what is their experience and then just incorporate it. What's your final choice? The one that I don't, I don't even know. I, I normally have a heads up on uh, what the books are going to be, but you've, you've surprised me today. What's the final choice? Um, yes, I didn't tell you, did I? Because I changed it. I changed it because um, it was just sitting on the side. It's a book I, I dip in and out of. And I think I said to you at the beginning, the difference is it hasn't changed my life. But I know it's going to change my life. That I can feel the resonance of this book already, that it is changing my life. 
So it's called Honey from a Weed by Patience Gray. Um, and Patience Gray was probably first known uh, as a cookery writer from the 1950s, a classic called Plat du Jour. Um, but it's this book, this kind of autobiographical cookery book that, that has actually become kind of iconic with most of the chefs and, and cooks that I know. And I know a few because my partner is a food photographer. So it was originally Patsy who had this book and has been sitting there and she read it first. So I came to it really quite late. Um, but I did start reading it uh, during still life um, because it is of a, of a woman who sort of goes on the road, leaves London basically. Um, so she shared her life with a, a sculptor, Norman uh, Mommens. He had this desire to seek out um, marble and uh, sedimentary rock, sedimentary rock. Uh, and in this search, they took to the road and ended up in um, Tuscany, Catalonia, Cyclades, Naxos, and Apulia. And so that's what she did. She traveled, they traveled looking for marble for him to carve. And, and all of these places inspire the text and inspire the recipes. And what they used to do, they used to settle in very, very basic homes. They rarely had uh, running water um, or a fridge or electricity. And she got to know locals and amassed sort of local knowledge about Cucina Pover, knowing the seasons and, and, and eating weeds. Even now you go to, um, there are many markets that you go to, I certainly went in Florence, where people would be selling weeds because of the incredible flavor um, and the knowledge that that was gathered, a kind of food culture that we have never really had in this country. Um, and it is, and so consequently, she's written this book um, of her life during the 60s and 70s when, when her and her sculpture fella were on the road and she was, you know, imagery of, of mules going up these steep tracks with all her pans rattling around on the back um, and the way she talks about you know landscape and art and people and and how she lived a life according to the to the rhythms of of, of winemaking and seasonal sowing and gathering of food and there's a goodness to this book because just her vision, I, I made it, one of the things, I, I ripped out some pages from a notebook. I'm always writing things in a notebook. And this is what I'd written from her, uh, from a few, I don't know, a couple of years ago. So something she says is, the secret of cooking is the release of fragrance and the art of imparting it. Um, and she was then another time she goes on to talk about the garden restaurant in Venice. Locanda Montine, Montine, this restaurant of grateful memory. It's the most stunning sentence, this restaurant of grateful memory. How many of us have, have, have equal restaurants like that, whereby we've laid down memories? Um, and she said, this restaurant of grateful memory has always been the patron of hungry artists. Evidence of this are their teeming works, which lie in the walls inside. And then I've got 
down page 101, spaghetti colla ricotta. Then I've got page 100, salsa cruda di pomodori. So it's a tomato sauce. Spaghetti con aglio e burro. So, you know, these, you have read Still Life and you can tell that the resonance of this book and other books like it on Still Life was, was immense. Um, as I say, to, to have gone certainly in still life from, you know, the 1950s in a very grey London into Italy that was then starting on the up because of the Marshall Plan and because of the ingredients that I'm talking about here and the vibrancy and the colour and the tastes and how people put flavours together, that, that this is a sensual act, you know, cooking is... Um, it's a it's it's a mind body soul. That's what I think it, Europe gives us. That's what food is, and yeah, a little bit more. But there was a period when I grew up that was not how it was embraced. You know, um, it was it was it, there was a certain blandness. Um, and there was I just found another one: pounding fragrant things, particularly garlic. Basil and parsley is a tremendous antidote to depression. And so she's sort of talking about getting a pestle and mortar out and just hammering, you know, the bulb of garlic and basil and parsley and that the actual physicality, if anyone has ever used them, I had, you know, ditch the other, get a pestle and mortar. And as you're just working it, the, the sense of achievement and smells that come up, this is about the best of the earth and the best of landscape. And, and again, how we need to cherish the earth and just read it, you know, especially now, maybe we, we can't travel too far. You feel as if you are traveling somewhere, you know, and, and, and an innate wisdom in food writing as well. And, and brought about by the, the characters and the people that she's met on the way. If I made you pick just one of these seven books as the most important to you, which would you pick? Whew. I think it would have to be Song of Solomon, just because it's an astounding book and it changes when I read it. And there is such depth of emotion and humanity that it's just, it's a reminder. It's a reminder why we do it, a reminder why we read, a reminder who we can be, a reminder of goodness, you know, and change and how people can, can become good. So I would probably say, uh, yeah, Tony Morrison. So Still Life is available now in hardback. Uh, what's next, though? Are you working on book number five? No, no, no. There's, there's really, really nothing next. There's... I. Uh, I usually get ideas for books when I travel or just get on a train or a plane. And um, I find being an outsider incredibly uh, creatively rewarding. And I haven't been an outsider <laughs> for a while. So do you know what? I, th I feel okay about that. I think maybe before I would have thought, oh, I, I don't have anything to write. I'm not, I'm not a writer who has lots of stories. I'm a writer who goes from just one story and then I have another story. So I think I will trust that a story will come if it's, if it's going to, but nothing uh, yet. And, uh, you know, I really feel I want to rest.
I feel I need to have a rest after this one. So as soon as, as soon as we're all allowed, though, maybe get on a train or a plane somewhere and uh, see what that strikes. That would be great. <laughs> I would love that. I would really, really love that. Yeah. Sarah Winman, thank you very much for joining me. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. My guest on Shelf Life this week was Sarah Winman, and her latest book, Still Life, is available to order at birdsbooks.co.uk right now. Join me again next time when another guest will be exploring their shelf life.